Introduction The landscape around the Bay of Dundalk is rich in history. During works in advance of the M1 Dundalk Bypass, archaeologists from Irish Archaeological Consultancy Limited and Aegis Archaeology Limited excavated 34 sites dating from the Neolithic period to the 19th century. Their remarkable discoveries span millennia. This audiobook, produced with Transport Infrastructure Ireland, tells these stories in a chronological order. Our tales are connected along one of the great routeways of Ireland. It was here that travellers found the road to the north, and where legend tells of Cúchulainn harrying the armies of Queen Maeve. The real archaeological stories are every bit as compelling as the mythological ones. Our story begins with the island's first farmers, who tilled and toiled on the soil around the bay almost six millennia ago. As we journey on, we will encounter people who experience the wonder of the arrival of metal and delve into the prehistoric realms they constructed for their dead. We will travel underground with the living as they sought refuge from marauding raiders, and we will take a stand on ramparts alongside terrified soldiers as they witness the approach of thousands of well-armed Scottish veterans. Our trip will conclude with the labourers whose back-breaking efforts created the landscape we see about us today. Each track of our guide examines an aspect of life in a specific period of history. But it begins 5,600 years ago, as a woman carefully gathered together the broken possessions of her ancestors. The Bay's First Farmers Around 5,600 years ago, a woman in Fahardlor went about a sacred task. With reverential care, she placed dozens of worn fragments of pottery into a series of pits. The broken shards she carried had seen long years of use, having helped to feed and sustain multiple generations. Perhaps age imbued them with a link to the past, a tie to the ancestors, or perhaps there were strict rituals that governed the pot's creation, use and disposal. Maybe she hoped the broken fragments would bring good fortune to the home she was constructing at the site. Whatever her reasoning, she did her job well. The 153 shards she buried lay untouched by the passage of millennia, until they were once again brought into the light by archaeologists on the Dundalk Western Bypass. The clay fragments uncovered at Fahardlor were pieces of carinated bowls, the very earliest form of pottery created on the island of Ireland. These bowls formed part of the culture of people who lived in what we now call the Neolithic or New Stone Age. This was the momentous period when agriculture first arrived on our shores. Before them, the rivers and coasts of what would later become Louth had borne witness to Ireland's first settlers, the hunter-gatherers of the Mesolithic or Middle Stone Age. But it was the island's first farmers who left behind the earliest archaeological evidence discovered by the archaeologists who worked on the M1 bypass. 
the pottery-laden pits of Fahard Lore were just one of the nine sites where the traces of the activities of our first farmers were revealed. Aside from Fahard, sites such as Little Mill and Dunamore also offered traces of domestic life in the Neolithic. At Little Mill, a cluster of post holes and pits revealed the location of buildings, one of which may have taken the rectangular form that was favoured in the early Neolithic. The detritus of life lay scattered all about, with worked flint, pottery sherds, and butchered animal bones being recovered. Some of the Little Mill activity occurred a few centuries after that at Fahard Lower, but the practice of deliberately burying objects appears to have continued. If anything, it had grown more elaborate. The people who constructed the house had placed 46 pieces of worked flint into a single post pit, perhaps as part of a dedication ceremony for the new building. This house went out of use following a major fire. The fire may have been accidental, or it may have been an intentional ritual to decommission the dwelling once it was no longer in use. If it was the latter case, it is interesting to wonder why the building had fallen out of use. Perhaps the fires were set after the occupant died, or perhaps the families had chosen to move on elsewhere, or perhaps there is a more pragmatic explanation, such as the building simply outliving its usefulness as it became structurally unsound. Before they could build their houses, plant their crops, or raise their animals, Dundalk's first farmers had to undertake the back-breaking task of clearing some of the extensive woodland that surrounded them. The stone tools they so expertly fashioned were vital to that work. Arguably the most important of all were the axes that allowed them to fell trees, like the one discovered at Fort Hill. The location where a Neolithic toolmaker once laboured re-emerged at Newtown Balregan, where archaeologists identified 69 fragments of worked flint. Most of the fragments were waste created when they struck, or napped, their flint into shape. But this snapper also left behind a number of finished tools, some for scraping animal hides and plants, some for cutting, and some which were used as projectiles like arrowheads. The most significant evidence from the Neolithic period was found at Balregan. Here, located on a triangular tongue of land formed by the Castletown and Kilcurry rivers, a prehistoric ceremonial complex had once thrived. It formed a landscape of stone circles, cairns and standing stones. Most of this is no longer visible today, but in the 18th century it remained impressive enough to be sketched by an early archaeologist called Thomas Wright. Though most of the complex was undisturbed by the new road, a small portion of a Neolithic embanked enclosure was excavated in advance of the route. This imposing monument may once have been more than 60 metres across. It boasted an internal ditch and its entrance may once have been marked by standing stones. The site produced hundreds of shards of pottery, most of it of a sort that is often found on ceremonial sites. The remains of very large pots and burnt fragments of animal bone suggest that ritual feasting may once have taken place here. 
Balregan had formed part of a regional Neolithic landscape that included the famed sites of Newgrange and the Boyne Valley. Indeed, it may even be the origin site for a number of stones decorated with megalithic art, identified at nearby Tatitra and Newtown Balregan. The Neolithic period ended some 4,500 years ago. In the centuries to follow, there would be much continuity in how people lived, though the succeeding ages would also bring change, notably in material culture and in funerary practices. But there was one new arrival that outshone all the others, both literally and figuratively, the coming of metal. The Age of Metal, the Chalcolithic and Bronze Age. Some 4,500 years ago, the seemingly magical process of metallurgy made landfall in Ireland. Its introduction ushered in a brief 250-year period that we know today as the Chalcolithic or Copper Age. That, in turn, gave way to the Bronze Age, that lasted from 4,200 to 2,800 years ago. The introduction of metalworking brought significant cultural change. Nevertheless, the daily lives of Dundalk's past people continued to revolve around the familiar, their homes, their farms and their community. Almost every facet of life was represented in the ten sites from the Chalcolithic and Bronze Ages excavated on the scheme. At Dunamore, the remains of a family's cooking spot told the story of day-to-day -day domestic activity. Its remains were filled with burnt animal bone from their meals and the distinctive beaker pottery associated with the period. This pottery, which was being used between 4,500 and 4,200 years ago, was also discovered at sites such as Carn Moor and Fahadloa. It was also revealed at Newtown Balregan, where the probable remains of two small circular buildings were also discovered. Situated some 500 metres apart, both had once enclosed a floor space some 7 metres across, the inhabitants who once dwelled there had farmed sheep or goats and used wild woodlands in the surrounding landscape to source fuel and nuts from trees such as hazel, oak, alder and holly. They had fashioned stone tools and made use of ceramic vessels for cooking and eating. Within one of their pits, archaeologists discovered a little rounded pot that proved extremely special. Its five small clay feet had allowed it to stand unsupported, and it bore the telltale wear and tear of frequent use. Known as a polypod bowl, it is a rare form of pottery associated with northern and central Europe. The Newtown Balregan example is one of only 14 known examples from Ireland, most of them found in and around the Boyne Valley of County Meath. As the Chalcolithic transitioned to the Bronze Age, Newtown Balregan continued as a favoured spot for Loud's early inhabitants. Local hunters or herders built two temporary or seasonal huts there, 
simple structures where they could seek shelter from the elements. While huddled within to escape the wind and rain, they passed the time by creating stone tools and kept warm by burning alder they gathered nearby. Evidence for a similar group of temporary or seasonal huts was also identified at Moor. One had been built around 3,300 years ago and was formed from a single central post that supported a shelter of interwoven branches. Within lay the remains of a lignite bracelet, a flint scraper and a large pot. A second, more substantial hut had burnt down, either accidentally or intentionally. The flames had sealed within it worked flint, pottery fragments and a stone adze. The adze was a woodworking tool made from proselenite that was likely sourced from either Tibulia or Rathlin Island in Antrim. Another of the Newtown Balregan sites was the scene of industrial activity. Around 3,500 years ago, Bronze Age workers had laid a stone-paved floor and constructed two kilns, or ovens, which they fed with alder, ash and hazel. Though no evidence survived to suggest their particular use, it may be that they were once intended to dry grain, or may even have been part of the toolkit of early metalworkers. Not far away was another Bronze Age industrial site, known as a burnt mound. 3,000 years ago, locals had selected this low-lying, poorly-drained spot to dig out a large pit, which they carefully lined with wood. The wood-lined pit was placed where it would naturally fill with water. The water was heated using hot stones. Burnt mounds like this one are a relatively common discovery from the Bronze Age, and they are thought to have been used for many different activities, such as cooking, dyeing, brewing, or even as a sauna. At another example in Fahard Lower, the builders had dug a large pit to act as a water reservoir for their boiling pit, and constructed a wooden platform of hazel and alder for their hearth. The remains of Chalcolithic and Bronze Age domestic and industrial activity was not all the archaeologists discovered. They also encountered the people themselves. In a pit some 10 metres away from one of the Carnmore huts, careful excavation revealed the presence of cremated human bone. Analysis of the burnt bone fragments indicated that this was the final resting place of a Bronze Age woman. A similar cremation pit was found at Balregan, where the community had interred their loved one, possibly another young woman, within the enclosure first constructed by their Neolithic ancestors centuries earlier. A third burial site where Bronze Age locals had interred and memorialised their dead would go on to produce some of the most breathtaking discoveries of the entire road project, the Carnmore Funerary Complex. Carn Moor, a complex for the ancestors. The old woman stooped down and carefully examined the earth at the base of the small hillock. After a moment, she eased herself upright before turning to deliver a simple nod to her companions. This would be the spot. Her young helpers looked at each other and smiled knowingly. 
They had suspected their much venerated elder would select it. After all, it seemed the natural choice. It was long known that their ancestors had once dwelt here, taking advantage of the good views, productive soils and nearby stream, not far from the river mouth and the broad bay that were such a dominant feature in their lives. Now, with the decision made, each of the assembled group hurried off to see to their assigned tasks. The old woman was left alone to study the ground she had chosen. She knew that soon she would be forever tied to it, but she would not be alone. For the next six centuries, the hillock, today situated in the townland of Carnmore, would be reserved for her community's dead. Of course, we will never know precisely how or why this early Bronze Age community selected Carnmore for their dead some 4,000 years ago. But what is apparent is just how important a location this became for them. The archaeologists uncovered the number of different types of burial monument, along with the remains of at least 16 individuals. The excavation touched on just a small portion of what was a much larger cemetery, much of which likely survives stretching away beyond the nearby Dublin to Belfast railway line. The heart of the excavated portion of Carnmore lay a barrow. Indeed, this may well have been the first of the funerary monuments dedicated at this site. It consisted of a stone burial chamber which had once been covered by a mound of earth. Surrounding this mound, the early Bronze Age community had dug a shallow enclosing ditch. By the time they were finished, the monument was some 20 metres across. Within the divided central chamber, mourners would have interred a number of individuals, though only a small amount of cremated bone has survived. Some of the burnt bone fragments were fused with copper alloy. This is likely the melted remains of bronze jewellery that had adorned a body on the funeral pyre. Just 20 metres to the west of the barrow, there was a group of cremations in pits and stone-lined graves known as kists. Some of these seemed to be arranged around a group of two larger pits and several post holes. The central pits may once have been covered, perhaps by a stone cairn. Among the objects that emerged here was a beautifully decorated early Bronze Age food bowl which may have accompanied a burial that did not survive the passage of time. Nearby were the remains of a bronze shield boss, an extremely rare discovery. It had once guarded the hand of a Bronze Age warrior who wielded a leather shield in combat. This central spot in the cemetery seems to have been reserved for high-status individuals. Standing guard overall was a distinctive granite boulder, as well as the sandstone slab decorated with prehistoric art. As these centuries passed and more individuals were interred in the cemetery, graves began to form a circular pattern around the earlier burials. A series of stone-lined graves known as kists formed the innermost circle, with a number also being placed into the central area. Most of the kists contained cremated bone, 
and some were also accompanied by fine pottery urns and food vessels. At least eight people had been laid to rest in just a single kist. Three of them children or juveniles, five of them adults. Yet another of the kists contained the skeleton of an adult male, the only non-cremated person found at Carn Moor. Those who had known him in life had carefully placed him into a crouched position there around 3,600 years ago. Beyond the circle of kists were still more graves, some centuries younger in date. They took the form of three cremation pits, each accompanied by a funerary pot known as a cordoned urn. Intriguingly, it is possible that the Carnmore Cemetery may have been used to remember some individuals who were not physically buried there. Two of the pits contained not people, but large granite boulders. A carving on one of them appears to represent an axe. Though known from Britain, France and Iberia, this is a very rare motif in Ireland. It is easy to see how these boulder burials could have acted as cenotaphs, designed as memorials to the absent dead. The final element of the Carnmore complex consisted of two Middle Bronze Age burial monuments, known as ring ditches, consisting of a central cremation burial surrounded by a circular ditch. These memorials were some six metres across. Both contained a small amount of human bone, and one also contained fragments of a cordoned urn. The longevity of the Khan Moor site and the wealth of artefacts it produced stand as a testament to the rise in population and prosperity that marked the Irish Bronze Age. This wealth of Bronze Age evidence is in stark contrast to what little we can glean from the more obscure, shadowy period that followed it, when the Age of Iron arrived in Louth. The Bay of Dundalk in the shadowy Iron Age. The flames licked the evening sky as the small family huddled together in grief. Great care had been taken in their farewell preparations. The intensity of the blaze that silhouetted them against the gentle slope spoke to a job well done. They had drawn upon the community's collected knowledge and expertise in constructing the cremation pyre which now sent their loved one on their final journey. The flames were fueled by the energy of the oakwood branches they had cut for the purpose and fed by the winds that swept down from the Cooley Mountains and across the Irish Sea. Soon, the white-hot fire would finish its work. Once the embers had cooled, those selected for the task would sift through the ashes and retrieve the cremated remains. All would then journey in silent procession to the burial monument, where an open pit waited. It lay in the interior of a small circular burial site that would later be called a ring ditch. There, they would give to the monument a portion of the sacred pyre, forever confirming in ash, bone and earth their ties to their cherished ancestral lands.
Such may have been the scene at Donamore some 2,000 years ago, during the middle of the Iron Age period. While the ring ditch excavated there closely resembled some of their ancestors' Bronze Age funerary monuments, in truth it was an all-too-rare parallel. Across Ireland, while the archaeological remains of the Bronze Age are relatively common, attesting a prosperous and very populous society, archaeological remains from the Iron Age have proved elusive. All the signs point to a change in settlement pattern and economy, or perhaps even the possibility of a dramatic population collapse. The Dunamore Ring Ditch was one of just four sites on the M1 Dundalk Western Bypass to produce evidence from this period. While Dunamore demonstrated how Iron Age people remembered their dead, the site at Balregan showed how they had lived their lives. It shared the same promontory nestled between the Castletown and Kilcurry rivers that had been used for the Neolithic ceremonial complex. 2,500 years ago, Iron Age labourers had selected a site 80 metres to the east of that sacred location for their own endeavours. There they toiled to carve a small artificial terrace from the hillside. The northern half of this 20-metre-wide subcircular platform bore the traces of settlement evidence. It came in the form of pits and post holes with scatters of tiny fragments of burnt bone, flint and pottery. Though little survived to be firmly identified by archaeologists, this may once have been the site of an Iron Age house. Not far from the settlement, a large pit was found to be filled with alder and hazel charcoal. This was created around 2,300 years ago and may well be the remains of a charcoal production pit. Charcoal was an important material and prehistoric people were willing to go to great lengths to produce it. Having carefully sealed their wood-filled pit with earth and straw, they next set it alight controlling the amount of air available to the fire to ensure that the wood was thoroughly charred through and through, but not reduced to ashes. This process required constant supervision over many days. It rewarded the patient kiln worker with an important commodity that was essential for metalworking. More evidence of Iron Age ingenuity emerged at Balrigan, Around 1,850 years ago, a farmer selected that spot to construct a cereal drying kiln. They began by digging out a rough figure of eight shape, over which was constructed a superstructure made of wood, earth and straw. Once completed, the farmer was able to light a fire at one end, which heated the air that was drafted into the other end, which formed the drying chamber. The crop was placed on a platform in this chamber allowing the hot air to rise through it. Drying cereals in this way helped to preserve them from fungal infection and hardened the grains so they were easier to thresh and mill. However, it was not without risk. Stray sparks could ignite the kiln, quickly consuming everything within. Just such a fate befell the Balrigan farmer. But the flames that denied them their crop preserved the charred grains for archaeologists, 
and revealed that the farmer's choice of crops included oats, barley, wheat and rye. The Balrigan kiln was the last prehistoric site discovered on the bypass. The kiln represented constant, regular, seasonal work, but unknown to our farmer, momentous change was coming, and perhaps he would bear witness to it. The arrival of Christianity and the coming of the written word. Life in the Age of St. Patrick Brian and Moel Shachnel led an army to Dundelka to demand hostages from Aid and Ochid, and they parted on terms of truce. These words, recorded by a medieval scribe for the year AD 1002, represent the first mention of a Dundalk monument in the historical record. During its early history, Dundalka, or Dundalgan, lay in Ulster, not Leinster as it does today. In the past, the area around present-day Dundalk was intimately linked with the great Ulster hero Cúchulainn and the tales of the Ulster Cycle, and it was one of the province's most important assembly places. Given Dundalka's prominence, it is unsurprising that the M1 works revealed substantial evidence for a rich tapestry of settlement and activity in the early medieval period. One of the most impressive early medieval sites discovered on the road scheme was revealed at Balrigan, where archaeologists uncovered an entire early medieval settlement. It was marked by two enclosures, one reserved for the people themselves, the other used as a corral for livestock. Balrigan sat within the ancient territory of the Iconeil Morhivna and would have been a familiar site to early medieval travellers. Nearby, the main north-south road they once used is preserved in the line of the modern R177. Balrigan's main settlement enclosure was almost 50 metres in diameter and it was there that the inhabitants led much of their lives. Although later agricultural activity erased any evidence for the buildings they once called home, much of the rest of their farmstead survived. It included animal pens, livestock paddocks, gardens, and even a water mill. This horizontal wheeled mill, which was powered from a nearby stream, was a type that was particularly popular in Ireland between the 7th and 10th centuries. The early medieval community at Balrigan strove to be as self-sufficient as possible. As well as tending to their crops and livestock, they also engaged in industry. A hundred metres to the north of their main enclosure, they constructed a smelting furnace. This allowed them to produce their own iron, fashioned from local bog ore. While their smelting and smithing took place safely away from the main settlement, they did at least some of their forging inside. An area in the northeast corner of their enclosure contained a metalworking space where iron slag, a homestone, and an iron punch bore testament to the iron tools once made here. The charcoal they used helped to date this activity, 
which took place between the 5th and 7th centuries. As well as evidence for day-to-day -day activity in early medieval Louth, Balrigan also contained the remains of some of the people themselves. The southern portion of the main enclosure was given over to human burial, identifying Balrigan as a type of site known to archaeologists as a cemetery settlement. The 47 graves represented many generations of Balrigan inhabitants. Though bone survival was poor, it was possible to identify the remains of young children, juveniles, and both male and female adults. Their bodies told a story of hard physical labour and of lives punctuated by bouts of disease and periods of malnutrition. The residents had constructed a substantial building that appeared to have been associated with the cemetery. Represented by nine post holes set in three parallel rows, it was five metres long by four metres wide and may have served as the settlement's chapel or mortuary house. Balregan was not the only early medieval settlement discovered on the route of the bypass. Ring forts were enclosed farmsteads and were the most common settlement type in this period. Two examples were excavated along the bypass route at Carnmore and Newtown Balregan. Both had been surrounded by a single ditch, with the Carnmore ditch enclosing an area of some 30 metres in diameter, while Newtown Balregan was larger at 46 metres. Newtown Balregan was located on an ancient east-west routeway and would have been visible from the ramparts of Dundalka itself, which lies less than one kilometre away to the east. The interiors of both ring forts were heavily disturbed by later agricultural activity. However, artefacts retrieved from the Newtown Balregan ditch provided the archaeologists with clues about the character of daily life here. The remains of animal bones in the northwestern part of the ditch suggested that this area may have been used for slaughter, butchery and hide preparation. The farmers had concentrated most of their efforts on raising cattle, but there were also bones of pigs, sheep and goats. In the southern portion of the ditch, the artefacts told a story about the people themselves, whose living space had evidently been in this part of the interior. The ditch fills contained dress pins that had been used to fasten clothing and multicoloured glass beads that had been worn as decorations. The most beautiful artefact of all was a penannular brooch. This mark of high status was intricately decorated with stylized animal heads and curvilinear designs and had been crafted in the 6th or 7th century. Modern agriculture had completely levelled these two farmstead enclosures and had caused the ditches to be infilled with soil. If they could have been transported forward through time, the early medieval residents of Carn Moor and Newtown Balregan would have found no surface traces of their former Ringfort homes. But it was a different story beneath the surface. But there, untouched by the plough, lay subterranean buildings that would have been reassuringly familiar to our time travellers, despite the passage of a millennium.
Constructing an underground world. Run. For a moment, the boy remained frozen, staring wide-eyed at the thundering horseman. A harsh wrench on his arm shook him into motion. As his mother's violent tug spun him round, he caught a final glint of the sun on the warrior's upraised weapons. Screams and shouts rent the air as they broke into a desperate, lung-bursting run. The breathless gasps and thumping feet all about told of others doing the same. But not everyone. Lifting his head, the boy caught sight of his older brother. He and two others now faced towards the approaching riders. Their eyes glistened with fear as they nervously thumbed their spears, bracing for impact. Buying time, his mother grabbed him again and they rushed on. A few seconds more and they were there. The concealed entrance had already been cleared and they plunged down into the darkness. All had been taught the way. Left, then left again. As he and his mother finally slumped against the cold passage wall, the door slammed shut and the bracing timber bolts shuddered home. All they could do now was wait and pray. Three early medieval underground structures, known to archaeologists as souterrains, were uncovered during the Dundalk Bypass works at Carnmore, Newtown Balregan, and Tetitra. Mostly they were built within settlement enclosures as places of refuge from raiders. The raiders took loot, livestock, and people. Their human captives were either ransomed or sold as slaves. Any of the three souterrains from the bypass excavations may have witnessed scenes like the one just portrayed. But these thousand-year-old subterranean spaces could have other, more everyday uses. As well as a means of escaping raids, they would also have functioned as storage areas. The dark and cool environments they created were ideal for perishable foodstuffs. Dairying was an important part of the early medieval diet and economy, and souterrains would have acted as large refrigerators, keeping the produce at a constant cool temperature. Souterrains are most usually associated with settlements. Those at Carnmore and Newtown Balregan were located within ring forts. Tetitra is an unusual example because there was no overground enclosing bank or ditch. In order to construct their souterrains, the inhabitants first had to dig out a large, deep trench, big enough to contain the entire structure. Next, they built the stone sides of their structure, within the trench. They capped these side walls with large slabs and lintels before backfilling soil over the roof stones to conceal their creation underground. At Carnmore, it seems the residents may have accessed their souterrain through a dwelling house or some other building on the surface. Their underground hideaway took the form of a single long passageway that was one metre wide and 1.3 metres high. Twists and turns along its 19 metres gave it a rough W shape in plan. The Newtown Balregan and Tetitra souterrains were more elaborate. The Newtown Balregan souterrain stretched for 46 metres and was concealed within a slope opposite the Ringfort entrance. It incorporated six distinct passages and two chambers along its winding length. 
Like Khan Moore, the Tatitra Soutrain was roughly W-shaped in plan, but it continued for at least 67 metres and boasted four long passages and one small circular chamber. Sourcing the stone for these structures was no easy task. The bulk of the raw material was local shale and sandstone, but the Tatitra Souterrain also incorporated granite from the Cooley Mountains. This may have been quarried from a nearby glacial erratic, but the builders also proved more than willing to plunder stone from older monuments. Three large roof stones at Tatitra and Newtown Balregan were decorated with megalithic art from ancient Neolithic tombs. Two more Tatitra roof stones bore inscribed Christian crosses and were evidently pillar stones taken from a nearby early church site. The Souterrain builders may have believed that these ancient carved stones, pagan and Christian, brought good fortune to whoever might have to hide beneath them. While efforts were made to conceal their entrances from outsiders, the Souterrain builders made contingencies for discovery. At Newtown Balregan and Tetitra, internal doorways could be bolted shut from the inside. Any raiders who broke through faced frequent changes in ground level, roof height and passage direction. At Tetitra, the inhabitants designed one passage so it could only be accessed via a step and drop hole. Newtown Balregan's owners made the passage beyond one door roomy enough to stand upright, while any pursuers coming behind them would still be forced to crouch. Despite their very functional design, these souterrains were not without some comforts. Larger chambers offered more space for anyone concealed within. Wall niches were provided for candles or rushlights. Air vents shuttled in fresh air from the surface. The earth used to backfill the souterrains when they fell out of use preserved indications of some of the items that were consumed by the people who once lived here. They included bones of the cattle, sheep, goat, pig, horse and dogs. The sea was not far away and there were also remains of oysters and fish. Fragments of pots told of food preparation and storage while items like beads and stick pins spoke of personal adornment and also more practical clothing items. A macabre discovery awaited in the soil and rubble that was used to backfill the Khan Moor souterrain after it went out of use. There, archaeologists uncovered the skull fragments of a young woman in her late twenties or early thirties. How she met her end, or how her remains came to be there, will forever remain a mystery. The heyday of souterrines in Ireland, between about AD 800 and 1200, came in an age when the Irish kingdoms jostled between themselves and nearby Viking settlers for wealth, territory and status. But on the horizon, a new power loomed. The late 12th century would see the arrival of new settlers destined to change forever the landscape of Louth, as the Anglo-Norman barons and their fighting men crossed the sea from Britain. A new power arrives. 
The first Anglo-Norman soldiers splashed ashore on the Wexford coast in 1169. At that time, Louth was part of the O'Carroll lordship Orgeel, or Oriel, that stretched across Armagh, Louth, Monaghan and parts of Meath. The arrival of the Anglo-Normans sounded the death knell for the old powers. In 1183, John de Courcy and his knights conquered the area, and others soon followed in his wake. In 1210, that part of the territory most intensively settled by the new arrivals was shired into what we know now as County Louth. Much of it was granted to the de Verdun family, who soon went about stamping their mark on the local landscape. They selected the Gaelic assembly site of Dundelka for their first earth and timber castle, choosing it both for its strategic and for its symbolic importance. This fort became known as Castletown Mott. Before long, stone castles were under construction at places like Carlingford and the magnificent fortress at Castle Roach. The Diverdons quickly recognised the economic potential of the Castletown River and Bay and soon decided to establish a new port there. This venture gradually eclipsed their first settlement at Castletown and the new port town would become known as Dundalk. The Diverduns erected a series of fortifications in the hinterland of their new port town. Three kilometres to the north-northwest of Dundalk, the remains of the earthwork castle they constructed at Fort Hill in the townland of Balrigan was the most important medieval site excavated during the M1 bypass works. Originally, it was likely similar in form to the Martin Bailey at Castletown. It was garrisoned in the 13th and 14th centuries and was on the front lines during one of the deadliest wars in Irish history. That conflict came when Edward and Robert de Bruce decided to take their war against the English to Ireland. The brothers were descended from Aoife MacMurrough, daughter of the last King of Leinster, and thus had a claim to Irish kingship. They were invited to Ireland by Donald MacBrien O'Neill, King of Tyrone, who sought assistance from the Bruces to help to hold back the English incursions into his lands. The brothers saw the opportunity to establish Edward as High King of Ireland, creating a grand Gaelic alliance to defeat the English. Edward landed at the head of a Scottish army in Antrim in 1315. Their route south, via the Gap in the north, took them right past Fort Hill. Dozens of nervous eyes must have watched from the ramparts as they witnessed the approach of thousands of well-armed Scottish veterans. They were right to be afraid. For the next three years, violence, famine and death stalked the people of Louth as the Scots struck out from Ulster. When the war finally ended, the dramatic conclusion was within sight of Fort Hill. On the 14th of October, 1318, Edward Bruce's dream of an Irish kingdom was extinguished, along with his life, in a conclusive battle against the Anglo-Normans and their Irish allies on the slopes of the nearby hill of Fort. The main feature the archaeologists identified at Fort Hill was an oval earthwork enclosure on the summit of the hill, 
with an internal area of 600 square metres. It was here that the garrison would have been placed, and the area was protected by a wide and deep defensive ditch and wooden palisade. While later activity had disturbed much of the inner enclosure, it was possible to identify the remains of a number of potential buildings, as well as what may once have been a watchtower. To the north of the main fortification was an outer enclosure, or bailey, that enclosed around 1,400 square metres. Here, too, the interior was much disturbed, but it was also likely to have contained a number of buildings. It was here that the food processing and industrial activities necessary to support the garrison would have taken place. In the absence of major surviving features, it was left to the artefacts to tell something of the story of the people here. They relied on locally made pottery for their day-to-day -day needs. The majority of the 131 sherds retrieved were of Dundalk type. Some of them would have come from a medieval pottery kiln that was discovered on Dundalk's Bridge Street in the 1990s. A single shard of green glazed pottery represented a jug that had travelled to Fort Hill from Saint-Ange in western France, carrying much welcome wine to the more privileged inhabitants. They also left behind two Whittletang knives, the all-purpose implement of medieval life used for everything from food preparation to eating. The tang was the end of the knife blade hafted in a wooden handle. They largely depended on cattle for their meat and raw materials, but also had pigs, sheep and goat. Occasionally, they would ride out to supplement their meat diet with wild animals, and the remains of a small number of red and fallow deer were also discovered. By the 15th century, Fort Hill appears to have fallen out of use. Sometime in the 16th or 17th century, a period when Ireland was plagued by intermittent warfare and strife, the abandoned hilltop castle became the final resting place of a young girl, aged no more than nine or ten. Her bones bore the telltale signs of nutritional deficiency. In the centuries that followed her death, this unnamed girl's lonely grave looked out upon a changing world. The slow and steady march towards the more familiar landscape that surrounds us today had begun. The emergence of a modern landscape. Back to work, McArdle. James used his shovel to pull himself wearily to his feet. He headed for the half-built embankment, taking a final deep draught from the water pail. He would need the water in this heat. Like most of the rest, he was already stripped to the waist under the beating summer sun. Another long stretch was needed to make the gang's daily target. James was part of the advance section, spreading the first cartloads of clay along the line. Not far behind, his cousins laid down the sand and rubble for the sleeper bed. It was back-breaking work, but it was a means to an end. All three had signed on with the crew in Dundalk a few weeks earlier. The Dundalk and Enniskillen Railway Company needed men, and the McArdle cousins needed work. But by the time the first train pulled into Enniskillen Station in 1859, the McArdles 
were long gone. They were still labouring, and still part of an Irish railroad gang. But by now the tracks they laid were fueling the economic expansion of the great American Republic, not their native county Loud. The M1 Western Bypass crosses the line of the old Dundalk and Enniskillen Railway in Dunamore Townland. Constructed during the 1840s and 1850s, its aim was to improve links and develop trade between the two towns. With stops in Clonus, Monaghan and Armagh, it was in operation for a hundred years until its closure in 1957. The passage of the new motorway provided an opportunity to examine how the railway embankment was originally constructed. More than two metres high and almost 20 metres wide, its core was raised with quarried dumps of sandy clay, while the railway bed was formed with compacted sand and rubble. Beyond the embankment, drainage ditches and embanked hedgerows completed the 24-metre-wide railway corridor. In the 18th and 19th centuries, projects such as the Dundalk and Enniskillen Railway, combined with road and canal works, combined to transform the infrastructure of Louth. New land enclosures and improvements made the soil more productive than ever before. New settlement patterns emerged, and the Industrial Revolution increased efficiency still further. The banks of the Kilcurry River in Balregan townland are home to the impressive remains of Scotch Greenmill, which went into operation around the year 1800. For 80 years, the mill used water power and heavy machinery to produce corn flour before falling out of use in the late 19th century. Among the structures the archaeologists encountered were the remains of the mill buildings, mill pond and mill races. The race, which once fed the mill, was a significant engineering achievement. In order to create it, the builders had to toil through the earth for 620 metres so they could funnel water from the Kilcurry River to the mill wheel. But while life got better for some, the benefits were far from universal. Louth was not immune to the impact of catastrophic events like the cholera epidemic of the 1830s or the Great Famine of the 1840s. In order to better their prospects, many thousands around the Bay of Dundalk left the country to become emigrants to America, Australia or the industrial heartlands of England. A glimpse of ordinary 19th-century life was provided at Little Mill, on the site of the ruinous remains of a 19th-century cottage, outbuildings and well. The little dwelling was depicted on the first edition Ordnance Survey map of 1836, and in 1855 it was part of a seven-acre holding. A little over 10 metres long and 7 metres wide, the house was built from roughly coarse local limestone. In its early years, it had just two rooms, with a fire built into the northern gable wall. Later generations sought to improve the dwelling. They rebuilt the fireplace, door and window frames in red brick and converted their two rooms into three, with an internal partition. Around the same time, an annex was added to the southern gable, most likely to act as a fuel store. A midden heap had accumulated outside the house, 
And here, archaeologists discovered the ceramics, glass and clay pipes that its inhabitants had discarded through the decades. The Little Mill Cottage was occupied throughout the majority of the 20th century. Indeed, its door was closed for the last time within living memory, which brings to a conclusion an archaeological story that spanned more than five and a half millennia. The rich discoveries on the M1 Dundalk Western Bypass have given us more information than ever before about the communities that came and went around the Bay of Dundalk since the coming of the first farmers. Thanks to the archaeological analysis of the remains they left behind, we have been allowed to imagine something of the lives they once lived. Piecing together the past. The rich discoveries on the M1 Dundalk Western Bypass have provided us with a unique insight into the prehistoric and medieval lives once lived in this part of Ireland. But the information archaeologists drew from these sites was not easily won. Careful scientific excavation and recording techniques were essential to interpret their findings. Once archaeologists left the site, they entered into a long phase of post-excavation analysis and reporting. It was only now that they could begin to unpick the secrets of what they had uncovered. A key element of that process was specialist analysis. Archaeological specialists with specific expertise examined each set of evidence in great detail. The layers of information they added, when combined with the excavation record, helped to bring each site to life. When the prehistoric ceremonial landscape of Balregan produced hundreds of stone artefacts, site director Brian Odonqueda turned to specialist Dr. Emer Nielis for insight. Her analysis determined not only what the artefacts had been used for, but what type of stone they were made from, and even how they had been made. Emer recognized that some of the flint had been struck using a technique called bipolar napping. This involved placing a flint nodule on one piece of stone to act as an anvil, while it was struck with a second stone that acted as a hammer. But it was not only the technique used. Some of the flakes had been broken off by precisely hitting the flint on a prepared flat edge, part of a method known as platform striking. The Bronze Age shield boss, excavated by Avril Hayes and her team at the Carnmore Funerary Complex, was one of the most spectacular finds from the scheme. Siobhan Scully was the specialist called in to examine it. Crucially, her detailed investigation established that the dark brown substance clinging to it were remnants of leather. Identifying the leather meant Siobhan could tell how the shield was made. The prehistoric armourers had beaten the wet leather over a mould, then attached the boss using the small perforations that ran all round its base. Her discovery also meant she knew the shield was functional. While shields made entirely of sheet metal were used for display, those of leather and wood were practical tools. 
the Carnmore shield had been used for combat. While most early medieval Irish sites do not produce much pottery, this was not the case on the M1 Dundalk Western Bypass. At Shane Delaney's cemetery settlement site of Balrigan, hundreds of sherds emerged during the dig. It fell to pottery specialist Sue Zayak to fill in the picture. She identified the assemblage as Souterrain ware, a pottery type commonly found in northeast Ireland. It was made and used between the 8th and 12th centuries. Sue was able to tell how many pots were represented by the broken sherds, how they had looked when complete, and how they had been made. Her analysis even identified impressions left by grass and by potter's fingers while they had been coiling the wet clay. During her work, Sue spotted that while many of the pot bases tended to be clean, a lot of the body sherds were covered in soot. She determined the cause. Rather than being placed directly into fires for cooking, the vessels had first been placed upright and the fires then built round them. Susan Kidner was another of the specialists involved with the Balrigan Cemetery settlement. As an osteoarchaeologist, her task was to analyse the human remains identified within the early medieval graves. Even though the bone survival was poor, there was much information Susan could glean. She established that at least 25 people were represented among the surviving fragments. Tiny striations on one of their teeth, known as linear enamel hypoplasia, pointed to an individual who had suffered severe disease or malnutrition when they were under the age of six. As might be expected, she learned that the Balrigan community also had lots of the dental problems that came with poor dental hygiene. On the bones of one young woman, Susan spotted signs of inflammation of a type that only results from strenuous physical activity. This starkly illustrates the harsh and exacting lives of ordinary Irish people in early medieval times. These examples represent only a handful of the many and varied specialist contributions to the project. These insights, informed by the work of the field archaeologist, have helped us to gain a deeper understanding of past lives in the hinterland of Dundalk. You can take a deeper dive into the information about the archaeological sites investigated along the route of the M1 Dundalk Western Bypass in the TII publication Around the Bay of Dundalk by Shane Delaney, David Bailey and Jim McKeown. This is one of a series of publications by Transport Infrastructure Ireland. Check out their website at tii.ie for the complete list. And for the detailed technical reports on all of the excavations, have a look at the TII Digital Heritage Collections in the Digital Repository of Ireland at dri.ie. This audiobook was produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland. The audiobook was written by Damien Shields and narrated by Gerry O'Brien. Recorded in Bluebird Studios Kildare with sound engineer Declan Lonergan. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this audiobook. 
It is part of a series of TII audiobooks on archaeological discoveries that you can find on our website at abartaheritage.ie.